you let me ask you please uh, to pray with me our father in heaven now we come to your word I pray for alertness I pray for single mindedness I pray for hearts desiring to hear from you to receive to believe I pray that your spirit would come and teach us and work in us in such a way that all that is true will be glorious to us and embraced and that we'll live it out. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to First Thessalonians in chapter 4. Please, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. I want to read verses 9 through 12. First Thessalonians in chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers uh, throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, as we begin, I want to note this, that Paul doesn't have two topics here, love and work, but simply one. It's work that's an expression of love. The reason I say that is because as Paul's been laying this out, he kind of, kind of brought all of this to our attention, that is, love uh, in his prayer that we see in chapter 3 and verse 11. He writes, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all, with all his saints. You see, his prayer is that their love would increase for one another. And the reason he was praying that is because he wanted them to be holy. He'll use a word uh, later that we translated as sanctified, that is to be made holy. And so so there's a relationship between our love, you see, and, and holiness. That it is our Lord Jesus who's the manifestation of love. And he said... For our witness, the way that people will know that we belong to him is if we love. If we love one another as he's loved us. By this, all men, all people will know that you are my disciples. In fact, as I read these passages, this passage from 1 John in chapter 4, we we realize that loving, in response to following Jesus, loving is is our assurance. Uh, He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and who and whoever anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love now we know that one of the ways that we love God the first and foremost way we love God is to submit to him to come to him and then when we think about loving God as Jesus said the two great commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength loving God as we even contemplate that we realize I'm in trouble. And so to to love God first and foremost means to recognize he's worthy 
of more love than we have ever loved him with. In fact, being honest, we realize we haven't really even desired to love him as he's worthy of being loved. And so our first brush with this love to God is to recognize we haven't. And then to love him means that then we receive his provision, that is our Lord Jesus, as the one who has loved and then the one who has taken the penalty for our unloving, that injustice really towards God. He's worthy of our love. We don't love him. And so the Lord Jesus loves and the Lord Jesus takes our penalty for not loving. And so our first brush really at loving God is to say, I haven't, forgive me, and I receive your love. And see, in that receiving of his love, in our Lord Jesus' forgiveness, we're reconciled to him, and then we belong to him. He is really our father. Prior to that, he's creator, yes, but really judge. But you see, when we enter into this relationship with him through Jesus, that's his love to us then, our receiving of that love and our love to him, then we're reconciled to him. He is father, you see. And thus then, we love because he loved. We love because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We love each other because he first loved us. And, and that's the essence. So, 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 so when Paul's praying for their love to abound, he's saying, it must really, if you're disciples of Jesus and you really believe in him, you really trust him, you really follow him, then, then you'll love because by this all people will know that you're my disciples. Not only all people, but you yourself will know that you're my disciples because you love. You see, how can you say you love God and not love? And so Paul's praying that their, that their love would abound. In, in fact, he's saying that this, this love really for, for God and for each other is, is, is their real sanctification. They're to they're walk worthy of God. Love means holiness. Love means we're living as God would have us live. We're living worthy of him. You remember in chapter 2 and uh, verse 13, he charges them. Verse 12, he charges them uh, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of this one who has loved us. What's it mean to walk worthy of God? A life that's fitting to him in honor of him. Well, to love him who has loved us. And then to love one another. And he says this is his rule. It's a glorious kingdom. There's nothing better than this. This isn't a burden for us to love God. It isn't a burden, shouldn't be, for us to obey his commandments. It isn't a burden for us to love one. It should be, you see, our very joy to love. Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, I'm telling you these things, that is to love each other, so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be made complete. I'm not telling you to love each other because this is going to be an awful life. I'm telling you to love each other because this is the really fountain, this is the really source of, of real joy. If you don't live this way, if you live selfishly, if you live with yourself at the center, you'll be miserable. You've got to, you've got to love. You're made for that. Created in the image of God. God is love. 
He was love before we were. He's always been love. That's the, one of the great uh, significant aspects of God being Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always loved. He hasn't been singular, looking for someone to love throughout all eternity and said, well, I better make these people so I can have somebody to love. He's always loved in himself. The Father has loved the Son for all eternity. On the Son, the Father for all eternity. On the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. And all of that has been love within him. And so when he creates in his image, he creates that which loves, not because he needed someone to love, but he created in his image those who thus, as he loves. Right? You with me? All right. I didn't get much sleep last night, so I'm just wondering. Yeah. So are you with me? All right. Now, he comes then to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, I'm praying that your love abounds more and more. So the natural question would be, all right, how should we love where we're not loving already? What have you noticed, Paul? You know, if you're sitting in a prayer meeting with just one other person and they're praying for you about certain characteristics and they're praying that you love more, don't you think, okay, what do they know? <laughs> What's their point, really? <laughs> you know? And so here you are. So Paul says, I'm going to pray that your love abounds. And when you shake your head, if you're the church in Thessalonica and say, uh, what have you noticed? I thought you just said we're really loving Paul. So what's left? And so then he begins to lay out love as holiness. And so he begins, interestingly enough, with sexual faithfulness as an expression of real love. He says in verse 3, last week we talked this through, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now there are many reasons why Paul could have listed to abstain from sexual immorality. He could have discussed how we're created in the image of God, this covenant God who is a faithful lover, and he's created marriage and, and sexual intimacy in the midst of, of marriage as a covenant expression of union and love. Could have said that. But his point was sexual immorality causes you to transgress your brother. See, sexual immorality is unloving towards those in your community. If you commit adultery, it's unloving towards that spouse's spouse that you've just committed adultery with if that person's married against your own spouse, you see. It's unloving towards them. It's unloving to your children. It's unloving towards their children. It's unloving for future spouses. It's unloving to the children of the community because we know what sexual immorality does to marriage and so we then know what it does to children in terms of creating insecurity because of, of, of not having a mom and dad in order to, to, to love them and be secure in their love. We know the poverty that comes in the midst of that to the children. So, so we know all kinds of sexual immorality and, and, and the impacts of it. We, we know what it causes in people's lives. We know the people who suffer even today because of sexual immorality. We, we know all of that. So Paul couches his admonition about being sexually faithful in the context of loving each other, not transgressing, not sinning against one another. And so now he comes to talk, interestingly, about work. And he couches work in the same, with the same theme 
and that is of love. Notice how he puts it in verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love. So he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm still on this topic of love. I've prayed that your love increase. And so, so he says, I'm concerning brotherly love. We're all Philadelphians, right? It's Philadelphia. It's a, it's a notion of brotherly love. And so, so he, says, he says, we're to love each other. Why? As brothers, why do we love each other as brothers? Well, because we have the same father. We've been loved by the Father. We've been reconciled to Him. Our reconciliation to Him is also a reconciliation with one another. We're to love each other as siblings, if you will, in that sense. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Well, that's the promise, you see. The promise of the prophets was that God Himself will teach us. And he does that, of course. God does. He teaches us by way of his spirit. His spirit lives within us to teach us, to confirm that which is true, to illuminate that which is true. But this teaching comes by way, of course, of the scripture. Paul says that you've received this word, not as the word of men, but, the, but what it is, the very word of God. And so you see, when Paul was writing scripture, when, when the scripture was being written, who is behind this and in this? Well, the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is teaching us to love by way of his word. And so we go back in the Old Testament and we, we read that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to read all about how it is that we're to love one another. We come to the New Testament and read all about how Christians are to love one another. So it is teaching by the Holy Spirit. Very clear. He says, you've been You've been taught by God and you have the very spirit of God within you. This very one has given you life. And so, so you have the spirit of God. You know that you are to love. Paul writes that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is the love that God has for us has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We know that we're loved by God. And thus we know then we're also to love. We know that. We don't always know how to do that, how to express that. And so Paul says, let me teach you some about how to express that. You express that by way of your sexual faithfulness in the midst of the community. It's a way to express your love to each other, to be faithful sexually, to abstain from sexual immorality. When you engage in sexual immorality, you're not loving. You're being utterly selfish. You're destroying lives. So don't do that. You, you want to know how to love each other? Stay sexually faithful to your spouse. If you're not married, don't be sexually active. If you are married, be sexually faithful to your spouse. That's the way you love, you see. You could have listed millions of things probably, but I think we'll all admit that's an important one. Now he's saying, I want you, I want you to to work. Notice he puts verse 10. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers uh, throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. The, the church in Thessalonica, we, we think, was very influential in providing for the material needs of, of oppressed Christians throughout that area. 
that they were great givers. We read about even the Macedonian givers in Second Corinthians in chapter 8 who gave out of poverty. And so, so we know that there was a great spirit of giving in that sense. But, but obviously they weren't loving one another in this area of sexual intimacy. And, and the other, they, they, they look at that, loving each other in this area of work. So he says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that... Uh, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so, so in this context of brotherly love, he's saying you need to work. And he has in mind, in his mind's eye, two groups of people. Those outside the church and those inside the church, which is pretty much everybody. Um, and he says, I want you to be, if you, if you don't do this, then you're going to confuse those outside the church. They're not going to understand what following Jesus really is. And on the other hand, you're, you're going to be unloving towards those in if you don't work. Now, of course, we know that there are times in life when work is impossible. There are physical and emotional and various limitations in certain situations. For certain people, for Maybe everyone at particular points in time. There are economic ups and downs. So farmers find it hard to get work in famines. And auto workers in times of depression. And construction workers when housing starts are down. And all of that. So we we know that. So Paul isn't talking about people who want to work but can't find work. He's talking about people who, who don't want to work for whatever reason. For instance, in chapter 5 and verse 14... He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, those who aren't working, not because there isn't work, but because they're just not working for whatever reason. In fact, later in 2 Thessalonians, in his second letter, this whole situation hasn't been quite cleared up. So in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he writes, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brothers who's walking in, who, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us, which is be busy, be busy at work. That was Paul's tradition. He taught that he lived that. When he went into the community, he got a job, right? So he says, uh, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, you can read through that and and realize Paul also made the case that he had every right as an apostle to come and be paid. He said, the other apostles are, but I want to teach you something. And he isn't saying that it is wrong to eat someone else's bread if you're a guest, of course. Or if you're in a situation where you can't work and need. This prayer of Calvin's is arresting to me at this point. He says, And if you should call us into greater poverty than we humanly desire, which of course is anything less than we now presently have, right? And if you should call us into greater poverty than we humanly desire, save us from any spirit of defiance or resentment, but rather let us graciously and humbly receive the bounty of others. So, so there is this sense of, of, of help to those in need. This, 
should never be a disgrace to us. But, but there are those who aren't working, and so Paul's making a point. He says, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. It's a wonderful little pun there, isn't it? You know, busy but busy bodies. In other words, you're bothering all those people who are working. And you're not working. It's sort of like the students who don't study. They always bother those students who are studying all the time. Hey, let's go here, let's go there. No, I can't do that. You're not working. Hey, let's go to the beach. I have to work, you see. Um, it's always fascinating to meet people who live in resort towns, isn't it? You know, I was in South Florida for a long time. People thought that if you lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, you went to the beach every day. No, we have to work. For those people who do go to the beach every day, they're vacationers. They're not working. They're idle. We, we, that's fine, but we work. If you lived in Colorado, people say, well, isn't it great? How often do you get to the mountains? Once a year. Why? Well, because I work, you know. So, so it's, it's busybodies are trying to get you not to work all the time because they're not working. So, yeah. so he says... Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So, so you get the context here. This isn't about people who want to work but can't for whatever reason, but, but those who are being idle. No, why? Why were they being idle? Why weren't they working? We don't really know exactly. Paul doesn't really say. As though we read these letters, however, there seems to have been in Thessalonica great questions. We'll come to these as we sprinkle our way through these letters. There was, there was a great question about, about the return of Jesus. So it's likely that some were thinking, A, he's going to return soon, so why bother with work? Or B, which is more likely, if we give them some credit here, since Jesus is returning soon, then I haven't got time to work. I need to go tell people about Jesus. You know, I need to get on. And, and so you get, and we see this always in the history of the church, we see this dichotomy between those whose vocation is ministry, if you will, and those whose vocation isn't. And there, there's always this sense that those who are doing ministry vocationally, the sense that that's more valuable than everything else. Because Jesus is going to come back, and what really matters is if people know Jesus or not. And, and so, therefore, the only real important thing in life is to be in vocational ministry. Some would then say, well, if you can't be in vocational ministry, you can get a job, but get a job so only so, the primary reason, so you can support those in vocational ministry. Now, that's been propagated by those in vocational ministry uh, a great deal. Uh, and, and then thirdly, all right, if you're not in vocational ministry, you're working to support those who are, and so then the only next reason why you should ever work is so that through your work you can meet people so you can tell them about Jesus. Now, all of those things are important, vocational ministry, supporting those in vocational ministry, and telling people about Jesus at your work. But Paul doesn't mention any of that. Now, he doesn't go into a long theological treatise on Work, Although what he's talking about and how he lays this out and how he can get to the point he's getting is because he does, obviously, he's the apostle, have a Christian understanding 
of work. And you see, if there's anything distinctive really about Christians, and there's tons of distinctive things obviously about the faith, but this is one of them in terms of how we understand life and how we understand work. Because you see, we, as Christians, understand work as that which is good. We understand work as that which is necessary. We understand work as that which is really part of our spiritual DNA. Now, I don't know if it's in our physical DNA, because I don't know anything about that sort of thing. But, but, but it's in our spiritual DNA that we're workers. Why? Because we've been created in the image of God, who is a worker. Jesus said, I am working and my father is working. We're, we're working. God creates. That's good work, right? He creates all that is. And he sustains by his providence all that is. So he's always, in that sense, at work sustaining the earth. And when God, after he created, he took the seventh day as Sabbath to rest. Not because he was exhausted. Right? He didn't say, well, no, that took a lot out of me. Uh, but so that he could admire that which he had done. And so at the end of the sixth day, he said, this is very good. I'm taking tomorrow off. Right? I'm going to enjoy all that I've made. Look at this. This is great. And don't you know if God can be refreshed, that was refreshing to him. To say, I'm going to enjoy that which is created, which is here. But then, of course, he sustains all of that. Now, now, what's fascinating is in his creation, when he created human beings, he gave us work to do. He didn't give the giraffes work to do necessarily to develop culture. But, but, but he gave human beings work to do. He said, I want you to subdue this earth. He created it, but if I could put it this way, and I mean this reverently, that, that, that what God created was rather undeveloped. And so he created human beings under him and by him so that through them, this world, this earth, could flourish. And so he said to Adam and Eve, subdue this, right? Work it. He took Adam and he put him in the, in the garden to work it. He said, work to cultivate this, build cities. Build all of this in the midst of, of this place and, and be fruitful and multiply. You'll need some help. And so I'll create families and through families and other people. And so we're going to create this, this world. And it's a world really where work, is, where work is good. Now the fall, of course, sin of human beings, messed everything up and messed everything up, even our work how we understand our work and how we do our work and, and all of that. And work fights back and, and it's not as pleasurable as it might otherwise be, I suppose. But still, work itself is good. Work isn't a result of the fall. The difficulties of work are a result of the fall. The relational problems as a result of the fall influence our work. The, the thorns and thistles influence our work. They're a result of the fall. And thorns and thistles pop up in every area of work. But work itself is good. We're created in the image of God to work. So when Jesus comes to redeem, he redeems work too. You see? And so we're to, we're to think about work as that which, is, that, which is, that which is good to do. Work in and of itself. I always tell people, if your pipes break, 
Don't call me. I mean, I'll pray for you. But, you know, I've not stopped water from flowing out of pipes yet through my prayers. And I'll probably pray that you find a plumber really fast. And it doesn't really matter if he believes in Jesus or not. If he can fix that leak, that's, that's the one you need right then and there, you see. Uh, and so that's the most important person at that moment in time in your life is that plumber, you know. It might be a lawyer you need, a doctor you need, a mechanic you need. You see, work is good. And Paul is saying that we love each other through our work first by not being a burden on each other. I hear that well. You know, especially in our church. You, you, you all don't know this because we can't tell you and we won't. But we supply materially through our church, through our elders' benevolence fund and through various other funds and ways. We supply a great deal for people. We just do. I said before Karen uh, had her meningitis, and now I say it even more, if ever I had a need, I would want to be in this church. You all are amazingly generous to people in need. And so when we say, oh, it works, you're not a burden on anybody, please hear that rightly. We should, each one of us, see the responsibility in our lives to work. And he says, that's love to one another. If you can work and you don't work, and you thus have to take from the body, that's not loving them. And in fact, working is a way through which we love our neighbors, even our enemies. And work is a way that we image God. And work is a way through which... God provides the needs for his creation. Now, he could provide it without us, and he's done it from time to time. Manna, for instance. It was kind of one of those seasons of, 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 of generations where God said, you know, I, I can really take care of this if I wanted to. You know, but, but, I, but, but for the rest of your history, you got to plow and plant and all that. But, but I could do this if I want to, just, just so you know. Um, but he doesn't do that. Why? Well, he, he does it through us. That's why he made us, to love. And one of the ways we love is by doing good work. And you say, well, I can never figure out how my work helps anybody. And we get a little down in the mouth about that. And we envy other people because we think their work must really help somebody. Uh, and they're thinking the same thing. Oh, that's part of the problem with sin. We envy others and we're insecure about our own. But trust that God's at work. Karen just got back last night from Pennsylvania visiting uh, our daughter Sarah and two little boys and all that. And uh, it was a delightful time. She could have never gotten there on her own. Do you know how many people it took to get my wife? From here uh, to Pennsylvania and back. You don't. Because, you know, we got in a car that I don't know how many people participated in the building of that car. And I gas and I don't know how many people participated in getting gas in my car. And, and then, then we rode on, on highways and I don't know how many people. 
it took to, to maintain those highways and even the highway patrol guy that made me slow down a couple of times, uh, you know, probably got her there safer. He didn't know that. He was just, just there. Anyway, uh, fortunately, he didn't stop me. But um, how many people did that take to get her there? And, 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 and even, even those people that made that pink tutu that's for our granddaughter to be born in January, that brought her great joy. And they don't even know her. But, but they loved her by making that little tutu thing and shipping it to Walmart or somewhere. And see, all that happened. And that's, that's the Lord. Loving her, us, through that. And, and, and that's just a silly example, obviously. But think about that. In fact, Luther had a great expression for our work. He called it the mask of God. He said, he said, this is really God. When we're doing work, it's really God. Now, he's wearing a mask where he looks like Bill and Joe and Mary and Sally and all that. But that's really God behind that. Who's loving us? He puts it like this. He says, what else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, in government? But just as a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home and everywhere else, these are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. But he does all those things, you see, through us. And so Paul's saying, listen, we Christians of all people, if we're able not to work. Because you see, we're made in the image of God. And we're to delight in that work. Whether we tell anybody about Jesus or not, and you know I'm not against telling people about Jesus. But whether we tell people about Jesus or not, that work is good work. In fact, the apostle, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, calls it a calling from God. And he gives us to do that work. And so we're called by God. The apostle in Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, he says that we're really through our work serving the Lord Jesus Christ through that. How? Because we're loving through that. We're meeting the needs of people in the world that God has created by way of our work. That's good to do. And some will have jobs that are well-honored in our culture and some not. Some that get well-paid in our culture and some not. Some that look really wonderful and some that just aren't. Right? And he said, ah, Christian." Live by faith. Trust that even in your humility, that God is blessing and loving. I mean, you know this. When we get to heaven, we're going to be like surprised at who gets the best seats at the table. We're just going to be surprised. You know, you, you know, it's going to be the unknowns. You know, it's going to be the people that have been laboring in various capacities, behind the scenes, doing what we think are the smallest things. 
carry that with you. So we're to love, you see, that which we do because God is working through it. So he says to them, this is how you, you love each other by way of, of, of working so that you're not a burden. And so then he goes on finally this. And he says, here's how to live your life. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Now, there's probably something about this particular group of people. Uh, so he's saying it that way. But, but this is really, this is really helpful to all of us. Because this is life, isn't it? Always laugh because, you know, we shouldn't say laugh. I won't say laugh at the second service when all the college students are here. I will say something like, it's fascinating to me how little the young understand how much infrastructure is necessary for their lives. When you're young, of course, and carefree, you don't realize all the work that's going into making your life, like your parents working, right? And loving you and caring for you and thinking about you and and helping you all along the way as they've been doing. And and your boss is helping you because they know you're young and they're sort of helping you out in that first job and all that kind of thing. And and anybody else that comes into your life. And it's fairly carefree because you have very little responsibility. But but then, and, and so you think, what's with my parents and what's with all these adults running around? It seems like all they do is work and sleep and they're tired and, and they're busy all the time. What's the deal with that? Why can't they, you know, kind of get about, you know, evangelizing the world? And, uh, and, and then, 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 then they get a real job. And their parents stop paying. And they realize, wow, this is time consuming and energy consuming. And, and you go, yeah, it is. And then you take a spouse. You go, boy, this is, this is a problem. Whew, Karen's not here. Uh, this, is, this, is, this, this is at least, it's joyful, but it's complicating. And it's taking more of my time. And then you get a child. And then you say, what did we ever do with our lives? And then you get two. And then you go, we're done. And then you get three. And you say, I don't think we're going to survive. Uh, and then, and then job situations mount up and then all of a sudden you, you think, well, gosh, now we need this and now we need this and now we need this. And, and, and then you realize if I don't find some joy in work where I spend a great deal of my time, not getting to tell people about Jesus at my work, just doing my work. If there's no way to really grab a hold of that and, and see that as for the glory of God, then my life is just going to be an existence. Because no matter how I plan it, no matter how I work it, this is what it's like. And Paul goes, yep, that's it. Jesus is coming back. And the most important thing ever is to trust in him. But God has made you to work and to cultivate this earth and that's good get about that in fact if you get about that outsiders will notice and you'll have a better in with outsiders because they won't think that you're crazy or that you're lazy because intuitively they know we're not to be lazy they know that what else they may know about God And you'll be loving your brothers. Very quickly, Ecclesiastes. 
on chapter 3. Verse 9. The preacher writes, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And that is, we know this is valuable. (laughs) He's put that in our heart to know there's something about this life that we live, this work that we do, that's really valuable because we're made in the image of God and he's a worker. We can't see all of that. If you're on a production line, you're going all day. You don't know the joy that I had driving that car that you bolted together to take my wife to the airport so she could go see our daughter and our grandchildren and deliver the tutu. You don't know that, but it's, it's true. So whatever you're doing, allow your eternal imagination, if you will, to work and say, God, I bet this is blessing somebody. It really is. And, and he says, because it is. He, he's put that within us, that eternity in our hearts. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to him. We're blessed with work. We're blessed with work. Then in chapter 4, verse 4. He said, then I saw all the toil and all the skill and all the work that come from man's envy of his neighbor. This is vanity and striving after the wind. That is, if you're just working because you want to do better than your neighbor, you'll be miserable. If you look at all the great jobs that are honored and look at your job and say, mine isn't. And if you say, well, then I won't be happy until I get one of those honorable jobs. You'll always be miserable. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So the fool gets nothing. He's just idle. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. In other words, what Paul said, strive for a contented, quiet life. You may be striving for two handfuls of everything that's out there. That won't satisfy One handful of contentedness, of quietness, of knowing that this is the life to which I've been called. This is the way that it is. This is is God's gift to me. This is my way of loving people I'll never meet. This is my way of of being the instrument of God to, to provide the needs of people. And I'll trust him. That a day will come and I'll see. Wow. I bless the world. Let's pray. Father. Pray for me and for us that we would. Delight. In the work that you give us to do. So give us good work. May we really appreciate it. May we know that in the image of God, we work. We would know that this is your calling for us to know that through our work, people are being blessed. We pray that you would be glorified and we would be blessed. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Please stand for the benediction.